Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Israel had now won two overwhelming victories in Canaan. Perhaps they were already aware that a consortium of kings was gathering to attempt to drive them out of the promised land. What cities could not do each by, himself, each by itself, they would attempt to do together. But whether or not they were aware of those plans, they paused to take care of a spiritual obligation that Moses had placed upon them before his death. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. We are now some 20 miles north of the likely location of Ai, and as we will read at the end of the chapter, the entire nation had gathered men, women, and children together. The location where this covenant renewal ceremony was conducted was not chosen willy-nilly. Shechem, as any Israelite knew, lay nearby in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where this ceremony took place, as we will read, as we will be told in verse 33. Shechem was where Abraham first received the promise of the Holy Land some 600 years before. It was to Shechem that Jacob had returned safely from his long exile in the promised land, or out of the promised land. And Shechem eventually became Jacob's family home. Joseph was buried there. The place had a long association with the Lord's promise to give Canaan to his people for their inheritance. It was a place closely associated with God's covenant. Shechem's historical significance will be reaffirmed At the end of the book, when after the land had been taken, another covenant renewal ceremony was conducted there, as you will read in chapter 24. Before Shiloh became the location of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, and before Jerusalem became the capital of the nation, Shechem was the city that meant promised land to any Israelite. Now, the instructions that Moses left for this ceremony can be found in Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8. And comparing (coughs) these instructions with this narrative, the reader can see that Joshua saw to it that everything was done precisely as Moses had commanded. Moses had also commanded Israel to conduct this ceremony with half the people standing on the side of Mount Gerizim to the south, and the other half on the side of Mount Ebal to the north. There is a natural amphitheater in that valley. The human voice can be heard at great distance. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, the burnt offering, as you may remember, was the offering in which the sacrificial animal was entirely consumed. It produced that aroma we read so frequently in Leviticus that was pleasing to the Lord, a way of indicating that an effective atonement had been made for the people's sins. So one of the purposes of this ceremony near Shechem was to atone for Israel's sins. The burnt offering was for atonement. 
The peace or fellowship offering, on the other hand, was a sacrifice in which a portion of the animal, once the meat had been cooked, was eaten as part of the feast. It conveyed to Israel a sense of joy and well-being in relationship with God. In the instructions that Moses had left for this ceremony, he made a point of telling the people that they were to eat as part of that ceremony and rejoice before the Lord your God. That's the fellowship or the peace offering. It is the peace offering, by the way, that is the immediate precursor of the New Testament Lord's Supper. Jesus cited from the ritual of the peace offering in the institution of the supper in the upper room the night of his betrayal. These two types of sacrifices were likewise offered at Mount Sinai when the law was first given and then when the covenant was renewed under Moses. Why the uncut stones? It's not entirely clear. A variety of reasons have been proposed. Surely in some way it conveyed the holiness of the altar. It may have been required simply to distinguish Israel's altars at this point in her history from those of the people around her. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Again, as Moses had told him to do. Taking Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy 27 into account, these stones would have been stones that would have been arranged in some monumental form and then covered with plaster so that the law could be written on the plaster in some form of paint or ink. Um, a monument, in other words, was created that was intended to last. What was written on that monument, of course, was not the entire law of God, but its epitome or its summary, what we call the Ten Commandments. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on, an opposite, or on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical, Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. Now, who were these sojourners or aliens who were also present to renew the covenant. Well, since participation in a sacrificial service was restricted to the circumcised, these must have been converts to Israel's faith, people such as Rahab. And there may have been, by this time, a significant number of such people, people who joined Israel on its march from Egypt, and perhaps more than just Rahab, people who had joined since Israel had entered the land of Canaan. In any case, it's another reminder that it is devotion to Yahweh, not one's family line, that made a person a true Israelite. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The accent falls on Israel's strict obedience to the instructions that Moses had given her. There is also an emphasis on the unity of the nation as each of its constituent parts is explicitly mentioned. Heavenly Father, this must have been a remarkable day and a remarkable moment in the life of the people 
having entered Canaan so miraculously, having won these two dramatic and convincing victories, now to pause and to renew their covenant with the Lord who was with them to give them the land he had promised long ago to their forefathers. We can imagine the chills running up and down many spines that day. May they run up and down our spines today. And for the very same reason, because you have promised to give us the promised land. And you are with us to bless us along the way. Here an answer we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of you have heard of the Scottish Covenanters, Presbyterians loyal to the Reformation, who fought for the freedom of the church from royal control and for pure religion through much of the 17th century. They got the name Covenanters from their practice of drafting and then signing solemn engagements to preserve the true faith against all comers and to do so to the death if that were required. The two most famous of these covenants or engagements are the National Covenant of 1638 and the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. Many Scottish noblemen signed these documents, some of them with their own blood. But the idea of such a covenant, a binding agreement to which people would give their solemn assent and pledge their undying loyalty, was not a Scottish invention. It came right out of the Bible. Ceremonies of covenant making and covenant renewal dot Israel's history from Abraham to Nehemiah. We have one of them before us this morning, one of the more consequential of them. And I want you to consider these features, all of which together remind us that this history is absolutely relevant to our lives today. First, to arrange this ceremony at this time and in this place was a very unmilitary thing to do. In that, it is a powerful witness to the supremacy of spiritual interests in human life. The narrative of this ceremony of covenant renewal represents really a jarring interruption in the narrative of conquest, military conquest. Israel had been in almost constant battle since entering Canaan. She bested Jericho, then she took on and eventually conquered Ai. More battles were to follow, as it was perfectly obvious that most of Canaan lay so far untouched by the Israelite advance and would be gathering to fight off the invaders. And what Joshua, what did Joshua do in this situation? Precisely the sort of thing that might have put his army in serious jeopardy. He broke off the fight to pause for a large celebration. It wasn't as though Israel was going to refit or retrain the army or prepare for the next battle. The Canaanites might be forgiven for thinking that Joshua had made the classic mistake of counting his chickens before they had hatched, declaring victory before the war had actually been won. The place is north of Ai some 20 miles, but for Joshua and Israel, it represented 20 miles further into the heart of Canaan. They were moving with their entire population, men, women, children as well, and so were exposing themselves to attack on the march. It's always easier to attack an army in motion, spread out on the march, 
rather than massed for defense or for attack. All the more, an army encumbered with civilians. What Joshua and Israel did made no military sense whatsoever. Further, the nation went to the vicinity of Shechem, a significantly large city, but not to attack it, but to conduct a ceremony in the vicinity. Would the Shechemites leave them alone to offer their sacrifices and enjoy their feasts? Who knew? This moment in the conquest of Canaan is very like that moment early in the account of the Lord's ministry as we have it in the Gospel of John, or Gospel of Mark, I'm sorry. The Lord had begun his conquest of Galilee by driving out evil spirits and by healing the sick. News of what he had done traveled like lightning through the nearby countryside and the nearby villages and towns. The response was electric. People started gathering in numbers to be healed and to watch him heal. A movement had begun in a single day. The Lord's disciples were ecstatic. They could see the Lord carrying all before him if he kept this up. But the next morning, the Lord was not to be found. He left his bed early to find solitude for prayer. Peter eventually found him and told him to hot-foot it back to town. Everyone is looking for you, he said. A crowd was forming. Carpe diem. Seize the opportunity, Peter urged the Lord Jesus. He fully expected that the Lord would exploit the signs and wonders that had gathered a crowd so quickly. But the Lord replied that he needed to move on from there to preach to those who hadn't yet heard. That is why I've come, he told his disciples. It was the gospel itself, the good news, the message of salvation that was his true calling. He could heal the sick. He could drive out demons and the people remain unsaved. It was the soul that was all important, not the condition of the body. Well, a similar principle is at work here. And the point was made in the same way. So what if Israel wins another battle and another after that? If she takes one Canaanite town after another? What matters is her relationship to Yahweh. That relationship had been threatened by the sin at I. It needed refreshment and confirmation. She needed to offer sacrifices to atone for her sins and to renew her fellowship with the Lord. And she needed to recommit herself to the life to which Yahweh had summoned her. That, all of that, came first. The principle on display here at the end of Joshua 8 is precisely that principle enshrined in the Lord's famous warning. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? Our relationship with God is what matters. No matter what else is going on in our lives, no matter what other crisis, what other difficulty, what other trouble we may be facing, no matter that we are surrounded by enemies, no matter that other things may seem to be so much more important at the moment. As a matter of fact, nothing can ever be more important. This is a truth we are, you and I, always inclined to forget. I don't care what is happening in your life or in mine. What crisis we find ourselves in. What urgent concern is pressing upon our hearts and minds, happy or sad. It is not as important, no matter what it is, 
It is not as important as your own relationship with God. The state and the character of that relationship, the health of it. Because eternity is always more important than time. And the promised land is always more important than this world. And as we'll soon see, any crisis is far better addressed by those with a sturdy and clear-headed and animated faith who are practicing an active dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, our covenant, our relationship with God, can neither be made in the first place nor renewed later on our own terms. It's God who both offers life to us and defines our obligations. We noted as we were reading through the passage that everything that was done in this ceremony of covenant renewal was done strictly in obedience to the instructions the Lord had given through Moses before the great man's death. The building of the altar and how it was built, the offering of the two types of sacrifices, the writing of the law on plastered stones, the reading of the law, all of that in the appointed place and the presence of the entire people at the ceremony, none of this was done on the spur of the moment or at a whim. It was all obedience to commandments that had been given some time before. What is more, all that was done was in fact in keeping with the law of Moses that had been revealed some 40 years before at Mount Sinai. The Lord had taught them and told them to offer sacrifices. What sacrifices to offer, how to offer them, to what purpose. And what was written was none other than the Ten Commandments, the summary of the law of Moses written on those plastered stones. And what was then read, probably at some length, was the entire law. That law we find first in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and then repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember the word Deuteronomy means a second law and refers to the fact that the law of Moses is given again in that book. To have the whole law repeated in detail amounted to a massive demonstration of how important the law of God actually is to the life of God's people. In other words, the truth is the same. The way men relate to God is the same. It never changes. What is required of us never changes. Our responsibility is not to invent new ways of salvation or of pleasing God. Our need is to keep ourselves loyal to the one way, the only way, the way that God revealed at the beginning. Indeed, in Deuteronomy 26, the Israelite was taught that when he went to the tabernacle to worship, to bring the first fruits of his crop, for example, he was to tell the priest, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down to sojourn in Egypt and so on, reciting the history of Israel in Egypt and then of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from bondage there. The story of his redemption, in other words. Well, it wasn't exactly these Israelites' father. Jacob was at best their distant ancestor. But spiritually, it didn't matter because that history was the history of their own spiritual life, their own Redemption, their own belonging to God, their own right to the promised land. He could call Yahweh his father and his God. He could claim a right to the promised land because of promises the Lord had made centuries before and to which he had proved faithful, faithful through the many generations 
that had passed and because of a divine work of redemption that even then lay in the past. And so it is with us. In our day, what we say to the Lord when we come into his house of a Lord's day is to be sure not my father was a wandering Aramean, though if we really understood the Bible and understood all that that meant, we could actually use those words with perfect meaning. But salvation history was not complete when Deuteronomy was written, so we're not likely to say my father was a wandering Aramean. But in principle, we say a very similar thing. We say when we come into this house of a Sunday morning, our elder brother entered this world and suffered and died for our sins. He rose to everlasting life. He promises to bring us to heaven in due time. Then we too repeat the history of our redemption, whether we're singing it or reading it or hearing it preached, we too read the law of God to acknowledge that it is the constitution of our common life. We read the law of God this morning. We too rejoice with and before the Lord as we eat together a meal of the peace offering. The Christian church is and cannot be, is not and cannot be, innovative in its doctrine or its life. It must be a fundamentally conservative institution because the truth has already been given. It lies behind us in one name, one person, one event, one revelation. We don't come into this house any more than Israel traveled to Shechem to make some new covenant, new arrangement, new relationship with the Lord on some different terms. We come to renew the old one, the ancient one, the eternal one, the Lord the one the Lord made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then fulfilled, validated, and guaranteed in the life and work, the death and resurrection of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith has been revealed by God. It concerns a work of God, and no human being, therefore, can alter it. Indeed, the one who does alter it is in the nature of the case, the worst enemy of God and man. And then finally, this relationship with God, this covenant must be renewed because it must be faithfully kept. It must remain a fresh and living power in our lives at all times. It's not as if once we are in, we can take the Lord for granted. It's not as if membership in the covenant community confers an inalienable right to the promised land, no matter whether we prove ourselves loyal to the Lord. It is precisely for this reason that the covenant was renewed again and again and again in Israel's history. Her faith would flag. Her obedience would fail. The Lord would punish her. And then by his spirit, he would draw her back to himself. He would demand or she would offer to renew the covenant. And then the process would begin again. Remember, for Israel as well as for us today, her regular worship was a service of covenant renewal. The very thing she did here near Shechem, she would do in her regular worship every, every week. Hear the law, offer sacrifices, receive the Lord's blessing. Her great annual feasts, and then the Christian liturgical calendar that developed so quickly after Pentecost were likewise intended 
to serve the purpose of renewing her covenant with God. A remembrance of the great acts of our salvation from Christmas through Lent, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. All of this can be done without the heart and with little engagement of the mind. We know that, both from the sad history of the Christian church and our own personal experience. It is altogether too easy simply to go through motions. But we're reminded here that our lives are actual daily lives. These lives that matter so much to you and me day by day are at stake in keeping current our covenant with God. That point was made with particular power for the Israelites that day when a special point was made to read out the blessings and the curses that were the last part of the law of God. Most of you will have read those blessings and those curses as they're given to us in Leviticus 26 and then again in Deuteronomy 28. Do you remember them? All the things God promises to do for us if we remain faithful to him. And all the, things he, all the ways in which he promises to punish us if we betray him. Do you remember how comprehensive they are? They cover every aspect of our lives. They're wonderfully tangible and down to earth. They concern your life from birth to death. They cover your marriage, your family, your sexual life, your business. They concern food and drink, war and peace, childbearing, health, and finances. You read those two long chapters, and there is but one conclusion any honest person could possibly draw. I want, I need, I crave the blessing of God. That's what I'm really wanting in my life. These blessings from God. And I must avoid his curse at all costs. That's the real point here. Israel's loyalty to the Lord had just been tested at I. She had at first failed the test, but then recovered and passed it. The reading in her hearing of the blessings and the curses that were part and parcel of Yahweh's covenant with his people reminded them of what was at stake in their continuing loyalty to him, their active and willing obedience to his commandments and their service in his name and cause. Everything they hoped for in life, everything you hope for in your life, he stands ready to give you if you are faithful to him. All that you fear in your life remains a living possibility if you should betray this covenant between the Lord and yourself. It is these consequences that stand behind the emphasis placed in the Bible on worship, both public and private. Worship renews our covenant with God. It keeps it fresh. It sustains it as a living power in our lives. The covenant is not something we can ever make with the Lord but once and then never again. We are to make it and then remake it and make it still over again. It is in this way that the vital importance of our relationship with Jesus Christ and God our Father is kept in the forefront of our minds and hearts. 
Thomas Boston was not technically a covenanter, as that period of Scottish history had concluded with the Glorious Revolution in 1688. Boston was born in 1676, so he was only 12 when the rights of the Scottish church were finally secured. But his father was a covenanter, and as a boy, he had spent some days and some nights in prison with his father when his father was being or was suffering for the covenanter cause. So covenanting was in Thomas Boston's blood. Boston was a great man and a great Christian, a faithful pastor, a deep thinker about the word of God. His published works exercised a huge influence on the Scottish people for more than two centuries, especially his classic human nature in its fourfold state. The always insightful Rabbi Duncan of 19th century Scottish Presbyterian life once said, I would like to sit at the feet of Jonathan Edwards to learn what true religion is. And then I'd like to sit at the feet of Thomas Boston to find out how to get it. His autobiography was published after his death. It was entitled Memoirs of Mr. Thomas Boston, but he did not write it with any view of publication. He never intended to publish it as a book. He had written this account of his life with its spiritual lessons for his children. But upon its publication, it became instantly a classic of Christian devotion and then made Boston a hero to generations of Christians, especially Christian pastors like me. In the memoirs, we read that a few years before his death, Boston tells us, I kept a secret fast in order to my preparation for death. He wasn't on the brink of death, but he knew he wasn't going to live that much longer. And he wanted to be sure that he was ready to face the Lord. They took life and death seriously in those days. How would you prepare for your death? If you knew it was coming, you were conscious of the fact that it was coming relatively soon, what would you do? Well, this is what Boston did. He read the Word of God, especially the law of God. He read over some confessions of his sins that he had written in his own shorthand some years before. He acknowledged commandment by commandment his failure to obey God's law as he should have and the sinfulness of his life. And he begged God's forgiveness. That's what Israel did with her burnt offerings. Then he renewed his covenant with the Lord. After I made my confession, intending to renew my acceptance of God's covenant of grace, to write it also and subscribe with my hand, I viewed two former ones, the one dated August 14, 1699, and the other March 25, 1700, and drew up a new one. So he'd done this before. He'd written out God's covenant with him and his with God, and it signed his name as an exercise of spiritual loyalty and of faith. These things, being intermixed with prayer, being done, I went and kneeling at my bedside did in prayer then and there solemnly and in express words, according to what I had written with my hand, Take hold of God's covenant of grace for life and salvation to me with my whole heart. Can you see him there? 
And rising up from prayer, I stood. And lifting up my hands to the Lord, I silently read before him the acceptance I had written and then subscribed it with my hand. What Israel did together, Thomas Boston did alone. He went over the covenant part by part. What God had done for him, what God had promised him, what he had asked of Thomas Boston in return. And then Boston's willingness to receive God's gifts and to offer his faith, his love, his worship, his obedience, and his service in return. And then he signed his name to all of that once again. I wish we had that covenant, a copy of it, but we don't. But it would have been something like this. I, Thomas Boston, a sinner saved by grace, do believe in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, his death for my sins, his triumph over death, his promise to come again and take me to heaven to live with him there. I believe it all and receive this salvation as an unworthy sinner with a grateful and joyful heart. What is more, I agree that owing my very life to Christ, by right my life is his to command. I wish to give myself to him without qualification or reservation of any kind in love and obedience. Thomas Boston. That's what Israel did. That's what we do, Lord's Day by Lord's Day in this house. And that is what every Christian ought to do for himself or herself from time to time. Of everything in our lives, and even of everything that really matters in our lives, this is the thing that we must never take for granted. Never allow to slip to the back of our mind or away from the center of our heart. Amen.